Hi, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Wednesday night. We're in the book of Hebrews as we move verse by verse through the book. You have need of endurance. How many of you would say, that's me? All right, we're going to give you a treatment tonight, hopefully that will encourage your life. And the uh, text before us is Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. It's in two major parts. One is a stern warning, one's a strong encouragement. So we'll, we'll move through uh, to the end of the chapter tonight. And if you've read through the book of Hebrews before, you know that when we move into chapter 11, we're going to be talking a lot about endurance. We're going to see the great hall of faith. And we're going to see many people who endured as seeing him who is not seen. And we're going to see people like Noah, for example, and Abraham and Moses and many others. And the writer will specifically bring these out to encourage the first century church and for us, the church in this century, to endure, to keep moving forward, to press on. So hopefully tonight, this will be a good encouragement to you. Uh, if you are able, would you stand for, with us for the reading of God's word, Hebrews 10, picking it up at verse 26. The writer says, starting with a stern warning, for if we go on sinning willfully, Hebrews 10, 26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people." It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward, for you have need of endurance, there's our title tonight, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the per preserving of the soul. You can have a seat. Father, thank you for this great section in the book of Hebrews. Certainly a stern and scary warning, one that is sobering and one that has probably caused some to lose sleep, and a strong encouragement. We need to persevere, to endure, Lord. And you are the God that gives endurance. Through the uh, encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, and you're the God who gives perseverance. And so tonight, I pray that you would give that gift of endurance to those who are exhausted and under heavy burdens. 
And maybe even for those who are too comfortable tonight, may you afflict the comfortable so that, Lord, we don't become lazy or not understand what we need to do with the gospel. So help us, Lord, to have that balance. May you be glorified in the teaching of your word and the way that we receive it and the way we respond to it. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. So if you want to divide the uh, text tonight just by way of taking notes, 10, 26 through 31 is a stern warning. It's probably the strongest warning perhaps in all the Bible or at least in the New Testament or one of the stronger warnings. For example, it's a fearful thing to the fall into the hands of the living God. And there's some language here that we need to understand and we need to understand the audience and so forth. The second half of what we're gonna deal with tonight is a strong encouragement. And I, when I looked at verse 36, that kind of just leaped out at me, for you have need of endurance. And I would imagine that, as I mentioned at the forefront tonight, that endurance is something that we can all uh, relate to and need and appreciate. And uh, endurance is uh, something that, probably is well captured in sports where you might think of a long distance runner, you might think of a, an athlete or a boxer or a basketball player or whatever it may be. And to endure means you keep pushing even through adversity, even when things are difficult. And God in Romans 15, I believe it's verse five, it's either four or five, is the God who gives perseverance. And one of the ways that he gives perseverance or endurance, which is a synonym for that, is through the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. So every time we open the word of God, every time we look into what the, the God of the word has to say to us, I believe that at least one thing he wants to do consistently in your life and mine is give you endurance, help you to press on, help you to keep moving forward. And I know in this broken world, that can be hard. Last week, uh, Alex preached to us from uh, Hebrews 10, and he concluded in verse 25, and he was talking a lot about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Look at verse 25 just to set the context. It says, not forsaking our own assembly together, assembling together as is the habit of some. Some had become habitual in not uh, fellowshipping with other believers, but encouraging one another. And Alex brought out that we find perseverance not just through the Bible, not just through the God who gives perseverance, but through community. And that was last week's message. And if you want to be able to fight temptation and to also find another layer of endurance, you find it in community. And if you don't gather with other believers, and the writer doesn't say it has to be in a certain type of building this could be around you know, a table at a restaurant. This could be a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. Whenever you are gathering with other believers, you're gonna find another level of encouragement and endurance. In fact, the writer says we need to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And we can't do that if we forsake assembling together. And ironically, as Alex preached the message last week, it was a rather thin crowd. I thought there was some irony there. And Alex actually went back to the time of COVID and he talked about some of those services and what was happening in the, the Christian church and the fear and you know, how churches were trying to navigate those times. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But he says in the NIV, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another 
and all the more as you see the day approaching or the day drawing near. Most would say that the day drawing near is the ultimate day of the Lord. And I think there's some pretty good evidence for that. But there are other scholars that you need to know about who believe that the day drawing near is the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. In 64, Paul penned the letter to the Hebrews. If the writer is alluding to AD 70 as the day drawing near, think about it, that's when Jerusalem was destroyed and everything related to the old covenant disappeared. Amen? The system that these early Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back to was in Jerusalem, the sacrificial system and the like. Once the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, there was nothing to go back to. The day for them was drawing near. Minimally, we could say this, that AD 70 was a type or a day of the Lord in embryo. The ultimate day of the Lord will be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for that first century audience, could they have really understood? And Jesus prophesied this, but did, did they put it together that that whole system that they were tempted to go back to would not exist beyond AD 70? Around 30, Jesus said this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. We'll study that in Matthew 24. But here's my, my point. Jesus actually predicted the destruction of the temple. He did it in the book of Luke. He said there won't be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. That was a prophecy that came to pass, which is another evidence that Jesus is God. This first century audience hearing the day drawing near, what else would be the day for them? So that's just something to think about, right? That system, the things that we're tempted to go back to often are so brittle so temporary. And perhaps, I, I throw that out for your consideration, that's what the writer is telling them. Don't hold on to something that is fading away so quickly and soon to be completely gone. For if we go on sinning, the word there is the basic word for sin, to miss the mark. If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's epinosis in the Greek, that's a precise knowledge of the truth of Jesus and the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, when you think about going on sinning willfully, it's hard to understand what sin would look like if it wasn't willful. <laughs> I mean, pretty much when we sin, we do it willfully, Amen. Now, there are sins of omission, and perhaps there are some things that we do that we're just ignorant to. Maybe when we're newer believers, we don't understand, you know, everything that the Word of God has to say. So maybe there's some sins of ignorance we just didn't know, some sins of omission, but that's still a willful decision that we make. What is the writer saying to these particular believers who receive this letter? Just remember, they are first century Jewish Christians tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. And the writer is saying, this is, by the way, the fourth of five warning passages in Hebrews that has made people lose sleep. And he's basically saying this. This is what I believe is going on. If you go back to that system 
where it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, Hebrews 10, 4, there will be nothing left. And if the day drawing near is the fall of Jerusalem, there literally literally will be nothing left because no other sacrifices will be taking place. In Hebrews 6, when we went through that difficult passage, I told you that the word impossible there and re-crucifying the Son of God over and over again is probably a reference to those believers tempted to go back to the shadows instead of the fulfillment in Christ. To go back to the old covenant instead of the new covenant. But here, if they were to try to go back, there's nothing left there. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And literally, in about six years from the time of the writing of Hebrews, there would be literally nothing left to go back to. And the writer is saying, look, if you have the knowledge of the gospel and you walk away back to the shadows of the old covenant, which is fulfilled in Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You can't go back to the blood of bulls and goats because there is nothing there for you. You can't go back to the shadows and eventually even that system will be gone from the earth. And it's been gone, by the way, since AD 70 until this day, there's been no temple in Jerusalem and thus no sacrificial system. It's not there. Because it's been fulfilled in Christ. So imagine a first century Jewish Christian, or at least a professed Christian, who's with the community, hears the gospel, understands what Christ did, understands he's the fulfillment of all the sacrificial systems and the, the blood of bulls and goats. He's the Lamb of God. Imagine someone sits under that teaching, receives it, makes a profession of faith, maybe goes into a baptismal, confesses Christ, and then gravitates back to that old system because of pressure, persecution, whatever it may be. The writer's saying, if you do that, if you leave Christ, there is no longer a sacrifice for your sin. Because where would you go, brethren, if you don't have Christ's righteousness credited to your account? What are you going to do with your sin now? Are you going to try to rely on a system that's been supplanted by the new covenant? It's not going to work. Are you going to, go to try to go back to your good works and hopefully your good works will outweigh your bad works? You know, tonight, there are a lot of people walking the planet who have heard the gospel, grew up in the church, maybe had a bad experience, maybe got offended by a Christian, maybe had a bad experience with a, a leader in the church, whatever it may be, and they walked away. But the question is, to what? If you don't have Christ, what do you have? What you'll end up doing is standing before God on your own merits on that day. And all I can say is, rot's a ruck. Because God is pure in his judgment. And God judged his son instead of us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I'm in Christ. I have his righteousness. But if I don't have it, then there's no other sacrifice. There's nothing left, brethren. Good works won't do it. 20 uh, steps on some path of enlightenment ain't gonna do it. The isms and theologies and whatever else that may be out there won't do it. Without Christ, you're gonna stand before God and be measured by the 10 commandments. Not only how you performed outwardly, but your motives, your thoughts, it's all there before the Lord. You wanna take that risk? 
I don't. <laughs> I want to be found in Christ. Amen? And we have a great high priest. We've been learning sympathetic, superior, who stands at the right hand of God or is seated at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So if, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, one goes on willfully, uh, and, and this may tie to verse 25, they've removed themselves from the church. They're no longer in fellowship. Let me just say this. If you don't have a hunger to be with God's people, you may want to check yourself. Because we know we've passed out of death into life because we love God's people. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't take a Sunday off. I do. <laughs> every now and then. <laughs> You're like, what? Yeah, pastors every now and then, right? It doesn't mean that you're under some legalistic trip that every time the doors open here, you've got to be here. That's not what I'm saying. Because we're not under some legalistic yoke as believers. But I pray that when these doors open, when you do come, you come because you want to be here. Amen? Because you deeply desire to know God and know his truth. So those who forsake the church, then oftentimes forsake Christ. You'll run into people and they'll say, I can worship God at the beach or on the golf course. Well, maybe you can for a little while, but if you don't have a desire to assemble with God's people, you got to check yourself because this is the organism that God has put on the planet. And so this warning, and you can see how severe it is, right? There's no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And I, I just think simply this means if you're walking away from Christ, to what do you go? Where will you go? Your old life, the sacrificial system, etc. it's not going to work. And so willfully is a word that carries I, the idea of deliberate intention and it's habitual. It's a word that is first in the sentence here in the Greek language. If we go on sinning willfully against the Lord, if, if we reject the gospel, then we're going to find ourselves in trouble. And we don't want to do that. Apostasy is the root word here or the main idea here. And apostasy means a defection. And so People wrestle with, well, who are these people that might go on sinning willfully, stop uh, attending or gathering with the saints? Who are they? This is always the big $64,000 question. Were they Christians who lost their salvation? Were they pretenders like Judas Iscariot who wore a mask? Were they, uh, you know, tares among the wheat? That kind of thing. And those are questions that we'll wrestle a little bit more with even tonight. But here's what's going to happen with those who don't have Christ in their lives. They will anticipate a certain, you can take it to the bank, terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, when you think about the adversaries of the gospel in the first century, when Jesus was preaching, who were the adversaries of the gospel? Well, you could say in some ways, perhaps maybe the Romans came to be, but who were the main adversaries of the gospel? It was the religious leadership. Many of the Pharisees, many of the scribes, the Sadducees opposed Christ. They became adversarial with him. Remember, they put him to the proof. They would ask him questions. They would, they would try to trap him. 
they would deny that he was the Messiah. They said that he did his miracles by the power of Beelzebul, Satan, essentially. And they were inviting judgment into their lives. And Jesus used some language that he's coming on the clouds and they're gonna finally recognize him when some of that judgment stuff happens. And so these particular early believers are being told, look, if you move away from Christ, here's what you can expect. This is not a popular message, but here it is. There's a terrifying expectation of judgment. And do you know who the judge will be on that day? Jesus. All judgment, John chapter five, has been given to the son. And it's depicted in the book of Matthew where Jesus, uh, people are knocking on the door in several of his parables. And he says, depart from me. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. See, a lot of people who try to demote Jesus don't really understand who he is. He's God in human flesh and all judgment has been given to him. And yet Jesus took that judgment because he loves us, amen? And so this is what the Bible teaches. And there have been people uh, today, there are, uh, atheist groups who will write tracts against Christ and say you're a fool to believe in him and essentially spit in his face. There are people like Voltaire who said uh, of Christ, curse the wretch, he once boasted. Christianity will be no more, said Voltaire. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. Ironically, shortly after his death, the very house in which he printed his literature became the depot of the Geneva Bible Society. That's God's sense of humor. And the nurse who attended Voltaire on his deathbed said these words, for all the wealth in Europe, I would not watch another infidel die. The physician Trockham, waiting with Voltaire at, at his death, said he cried out most desperately, quote, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you will give me six months life, then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. His dying words, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. So you have people who are very outspoken atheists. Years ago, Hank Hanegraaff took a phone call from a very angry atheist. And this is probably, I would say, maybe in the 90s. He called up the Bible Answer Man program and he said, uh, Hank, I don't know how you can be such a fool and believe in this God of the Bible. And uh, how can't you, how, how do you not believe in evolution? How do you not believe in this? And he goes, he basically said that Jesus is a joke. And he said, if I end up standing before Jesus, I will spit in his face. He said this on live radio. I will call him a ninny, whatever a ninny is. And I will spit in his face. Now, if you were the one taking Bible questions that day, how might you respond? My flesh would be wanting to wrench the guy's neck through the phone, right, for offending my Lord. But the guy said, Hank, if there is a Jesus and he is the judge, I will call him a ninny and spit in his face. And he said it with angst. You know what Hank said in response? Well, that wouldn't be the first time someone spit in his face. And the Holy Spirit just gave Hank Hanegraaff 
a incredible response. It wouldn't be the first time someone spit in his face. And for some reason, Jesus is like a lightning rod, isn't he? <laughs> uh, there are people who would give their lives for him even tonight, probably all over the planet, and then there are people who hate him with such a hatred. And you have to ask questions like, why? Buddha doesn't do that to people. <laughs> have you guys been watching all the Scientology commercials that are on television? Where do they get all that money to do all those commercials? You know where they get it? They rip people off through their pseudo-counseling sessions. Just another one of those movements. And by the way, people who have gone through Scientology say when you finally get to the end of it, they say you have to repeat it all over again. That's what they have to offer. Consider Thomas Paine, the renowned American author. He was an enemy of Christianity. He exerted considerable influence against belief in God and the scriptures. He came to his last hour in 1809, disillusioned and an unhappy man. During his final moments on earth, he said, quote, I would give worlds if I had them. That age of reason had not been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Oh, God, what have I done to suffer so much? But there is no God. But if there should be, what will become of me hereafter? Stay with me for God's sake. Send even a child to stay with me, for it is hell to be alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one, close quote. These are famous, outspoken atheists. And in their dying moments, you can see that without Christ, there's a terrifying expectation of judgment. Deep down, man knows. He knows there's a God. He knows that God is holy. And he has a sense of God's law written on his conscience. Amen? We know. That's why our conscience either accuses us when we do stuff wrong or excuses us when we do it right. That's the Imago Dei. That's God's written his image in us. And so the author goes on to say these words, and he's now still referencing Old and New Covenant, and he says, anyone who has set aside 28, the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. For the sake of time, write down Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. Let me just read verses 6 and 7 there so you get the feel for it. It says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death he shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 17, 6. This is verse 7. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. That's why Jesus said to the crowd in John 8, you without sin cast the first stone at her. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so shall you purge the evil from your midst. Now in the law of Moses, if you were accused of a crime and two or three witnesses confirmed every fact, you could die for a capital offense. And I think there were about 30 different things in the old covenant that could be a capital crime worthy of death. And here, probably just speaking of physical death. So you did something wrong. You did something worthy of the death penalty. It would be executed from the lesser to the greater. This is how he's arguing now. How, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot or spurned ESV, the Son of God, 
has regarded as unclean or profaned or treated as unholy the blood of the covenant, that's the new covenant, by which he, is, he was sanctified and has insulted or outraged the spirit of grace. Now, you know, this is the only place in the Bible other than a, a reference in the book of Zechariah where the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of grace. And it's a beautiful description of his ministry. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is God. And he came to bear witness to the truth. When we get saved, he regenerates us and seals us for the day of redemption. He is our helper. He is our comforter. He is the one that empowers us for ministry. There's so many things that the Holy Spirit does in our life. He bears witness with our spirit that we belong to God. By him, we cry out, Abba, Father. There's so many beautiful ministries the Holy Spirit does in our life. Uh, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here, the Spirit is called the Spirit of what? Grace. Isn't that beautiful? He's the Spirit of grace. God is the God of all grace. And when the Spirit is knocking on our door, if you will, he wants to bring the grace of the gospel into your life. What is grace? It's God's benevolence. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's the sacrifice of God's one and only son to atone for my sin. But if I say no, if I sense the conviction of the spirit, if I sit in a church service and I am moved by the power of the kingdom and then I say no to God, you know what happens? I've insulted the spirit of grace. I've said, get out of here. I don't want that. I, I push that away. And there are people today and have been people over the years who've sensed the spirit saying, you need Christ. You need the gospel. And they have rejected it. Stephen said in that famous uh, sermon to the Sanhedrin, you always resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. What was he saying? He was saying, you push the spirit away. You don't listen to his voice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, Revelation 2 and 3. The spirit bears witness of the grace of Christ. There's a dimension in the kingdom when we live and preach and teach and whatever we do where the spirit of the living God inhabits those things. Somewhat mysterious. Jesus said the, the Spirit's almost like the wind. He, he blows where he will. And this is, this is the stuff of the kingdom. From the old to the new covenant, the writer says, if you go back to that sacrificial system, how much more, if, if the old covenant had 30 different things that could get you capitally punished and kill you physically, how much severe from the lesser to the greater do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? What does that mean, to trample him underfoot? Somebody put it this way. In order for you to end up in hell, you're gonna have to walk over my dead son. That's, that's a graphic image, but that's not quite accurate, right? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross, but... I think you get the image, right? The, the idea of trampling the Son of God underfoot 
Jesus used the image of trampling underfoot seed. He said, the sower went out to sow his seed and he sowed some that fell beside the road and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air ate it up. When you trample something under your foot, it's like you're saying, that's not even worth me stopping to pick it up. Like for example, some of you do this. How many of you pick up a penny if it's on the ground? Desperate souls that you are. <laughs> Sorry. Now, hey, every little penny counts, right? And sometimes you think, oh, that's a lucky penny. It was a $10 bill. I would consider it lucky. I'm at the age where I'm not sure it's always worth the cost to lean down and pick up even a nickel. <laughs> that's, a, that's a different story. But when you trample something under your foot, you know, they've, they've had some reports of people who, uh, one story I remember from years ago, there was a person who was stabbed in a store in New York and the person was laying on the ground bleeding and people were stepping over the individual to go and do their shopping and get their stuff done and other people had their phones out and were filming the person and not even helping the individual. I want you to take that image and think about the new covenant. Think about the death of Christ. When people saw him on the cross, you know what some people did? They walked by the cross, which was probably literally on the road so that Jesus's feet might have been at most people's heads. And people mocked him while he was dying. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. He saved others, but he can't save himself. <laughs> Can you imagine if you had the power at your fingertips to destroy the landscape? Ooh-wee. Figuratively, says one writer, the metaphor portrays taking the son of God, the highest accord given to Christ in Hebrews, and grinding him into the dirt. Someone saying something like this, I could care less. I won't even stop to consider that. I won't even stop to pick up that gospel track. I don't want to hear that Jesus stuff. God the Son, Son of God, the blood of the covenant, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you can see what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's basically saying, if it's nothing to you who walk by, well, then you're rejecting your salvation through the blood of Christ, which has been obviously emphasized in chapter 10 and 9. Here's a, here's a doozy theologically. You ready for this one? It, it's talking about how much severe 29 do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was what? Sanctified. What does that mean? The word sanctified is hagiazo in Greek. It means to be made holy, to be set apart. It, if you look it up in a lexicon, you'll see the words holy, pure, and you'll see the idea of set apart. So look at the verse again. It says, by which he was sanctified. This is, this is what causes some people to say, does this mean that there were people in the first century Hebrew church who were sanctified by the blood of Christ? They were sanctified and they 
walked away. Yeah, that's probably a good noise right there to <laughs> kind of capture it. Is it possible that some people were actually made holy and then lost it, walked away from it? Does, it, does sanctified mean that the blood of Christ is universal in its effect to atone, but only those who receive Christ receive atonement? In other words, did Jesus die for everybody and therefore, therefore sanctification is a, in a wider sense, speaking of the blood of the covenant, but it's especially for believers. You could write down 1 Timothy 4.10, 1 John 2.2, 2, Jesus died for the whole world. There may be something else here. There, there are people um, who would argue that he was sanctified as Christ. Um, that's a certain theological position that uh, they, they don't want to acknowledge that perhaps there's something else going on here. So they say the sanctified one is Christ. And there's, there's good people who would hold that. I, I would submit something else to you. It's possible that the word sanctified has a similar use to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. This is how it reads. And you just write this down for your notes. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. One of those confusing verses, and you're like, what does that mean? Well, scholars would say, that the word sanctified there means if you were married to an unbeliever and they want to stay married to you, every day they are specially set apart to witness the gospel in your life and they're set apart in some special way. Now that doesn't mean that's gonna save them just because they live with a Christian, right? It doesn't happen by osmosis. But the, the, the point here is that if someone take it, from that example to the Hebrew first century church. If someone sat in services consistently, they had been set apart to hear the gospel. And so it could be that they being sanctified meant that they had a special opportunity to hear the gospel and probably more than once because it would appear that many of these people heard the gospel over and over again. I don't know what the right answer here is, but it does say he was sanctified, but notice what happens. He's now insulted the spirit of grace. He's uh, pushed him away or hurt him. The word insulted is uh, from a word in Greek where we get hubris, and it means an exaggerated pride or self-confidence. And so this is kind of at the root of it, and we are winding down on the hard section, but he says, for we know him who said, 30, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying or fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now that's the hard section. So everybody just breathe. <sighs> okay. And I will say that David, when he had... Uh, counted the people. This is a, just reading out of a commentary. King David, after he had sinned against God by counting the number of fighting men in Israel and Judah, 
evidently viewed falling into God's hands as divine judgment. Because when God commanded him to choose between three alternatives, his wise reply was, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. 2 Samuel 24, 14. Very possibly this exact passage was on our author's mind and governed the form of the words he chose. However that may be, for the true believer, there is nothing better than to fall repentantly into the hands of God. His hands are our hope. And I think what we would say is this. If one rejects Christ, either way you're gonna fall into the hands of the living God. Amen? Now, if you fall into the hands of the living God in a positive sense, you'll fall into his pierced, you know, scarred hands, and he'll say, come into the kingdom, well done. But if you fall into the hands of the living God, having rejected the spirit of grace and the blood of the new covenant, you'll fall into his hands in a different sense. And that will be for judgment. And I know that's not a popular message, and I know that, you know, some people say, oh, there, there it is. You know, the hellfire and brimstone message. But here's the point. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says there's a heaven and there's a hell. There's a way to avoid judgment and to know God personally and have the righteousness of Christ. But the ball's in your court. If you reject the spirit of grace, if you say no, and you can, however you work out your soteriology, I'll let you wrestle with that. But then you fall into the hands of the living God for judgment. And of course, we don't want anybody to do that. God doesn't want anybody to perish. That's why Jesus came. All right, section two is the encouragement. We'll move quickly. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict the word great conflict there is a single Greek word, athlesis, where we get athletic, a hard struggle of sufferings. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, says the NIV. One of the things that you have to do so that you don't fall away is you have to remember. You have to remember former days. How many of you can think back to the time when you first got saved? For some of you, that was a long time ago. Do you remember the zeal that you had? Do you remember the passion that you had? I remember I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. And I was certainly uh, green behind the ears, uh, wet behind the ears, if you want to say it that way. And I was annoying. And I was telling people left and right, up and down, family members, and they were like, we know you, Michael. And okay, you know me, but I'm a new creation in Christ. And you know, people probably thought, is this gonna last? And by the way, this happened in the late 80s, so it has lasted. <laughs> but I had a zeal for evangelism and I was trying to tell everybody left and right about the gospel and I would consistently try to close the deal. All right, let's get you to the sinner's prayer right now. I think I was a little kind of salesman, some of those salesman qualities, you know. But the writer's saying, I want, you to, I want you to go back for a moment to the early days. Probably this would have reflected the persecution under Claudius. The date would be AD 49. So maybe about 15 years ago, when after being enlightened, when you heard the gospel, you endured, verse 32. You were like an athlete. How many of you watched the Laker game last night? All right, game one uh, of that series with Denver. I kind of, I turned off basketball for several years, but Lakers got deep into the playoffs, so I turned it back on. Uh, 
What an amazing game that was. The Lakers were down early. They fought back. I mean, the game, I, I don't know what it was, like 120 to 100 and something. And the Lakers kept fighting back and they, were, they gave everything they had and it was exhausting. Have you ever watched like a 15 round boxing match and been amazed that those guys are still standing on their feet? I couldn't bounce around for 30 seconds like that. I'd be gassed, you know? But they're getting hit and they're bleeding sometimes and, and they persevere to win what we would call a perishable crown, right? And the writer says, do you remember when you stood almost like an athlete stands through a marathon and you had all these sufferings and you had this in the picture of an athletic contest and you stood your ground. Do you remember how you were made a public spectacle, verse 33, where we get the word theater? Through reproaches and tribulations, plural, you became sharers. That's the Greek word koinonoi, where we get the idea of true fellowship. But those who were so treated, you stood arm in arm, hand in hand with other believers. You stood by their side. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. If you have a New King James, it says, you had compassion on me in my chains. There's a, a manuscript stream that would say the writer of Hebrews experienced this compassion firsthand. I don't know which one is the authentic one. You showed sympathy to prisoners. We'll learn about this in Hebrews 13 where they would show the sympathy to prisoners. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How did that happen? Some say it was confiscated by Jewish leadership. Others say they lost their inheritance because their family kicked them out because they had received Jesus as Messiah. And fathers said to their sons, you're no longer my son. And therefore you don't get an inheritance. And happily, they said, okay, you know what? Whatever's on this planet is only temporary anyway. So I'm going to go for the greater reward. You knew you had a better possession, an abiding one. And so you stood your ground. You accepted joyfully the trial and tribulation. You stood. Don't throw away your confidence. Therefore, 35. Brethren, can you make this your own tonight? Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It is always too soon to give up. But I will tell you this, one of your greatest temptations in the Christian life, if you haven't learned this yet, here's a nugget, put it in your pocket. One of your greatest temptations in the Christian life will be to give up. To give up on yourself, to give up on your faith, to say, I'm not gonna take it as serious anymore, whatever it may be. There's a lot of people who start well. There's not a lot of people who finish well. And so endurance is what you need. Don't throw away your confidence. This is a story I read in a commentary. We've all heard of the famous uh, high-wire aerialist, the Flying Wallendas, about the tragic death of their leader, the great Carl Wallenda, in 1978, shortly after the great Walenda fell to his death, traversing a 75-foot high wire in downtown San Juan, Puerto Rico. His wife, also an aerialist, discussed the faithful San Juan walk. She recalled, all Carl thought about for three straight months prior to it was falling. It was the first time he had ever thought about that. It seemed to me that he put all his energies into not falling rather than walking the tightrope. 
Mrs. Walenda added that her husband went so far as to personally supervise the installation of the tightrope, making sure the guy wires were secured. Something she said I'd never even uh, thought, he never even thought of doing before. While Linda's loss of confidence portended and even contributed to his death, though his past performances gave him every reason to be confident, yet he was so focused on falling that he fell. And I think a lot of us maybe find ourselves on that tightrope tonight. I hope you don't. But sometimes we're so worried about falling, we don't walk well anymore. We're inspecting everything and looking at every minute detail and the Lord's saying, just keep your eyes on me, which we're gonna learn in chapter 12. What you need, brethren, this is the title, is you need endurance. Don't throw it all, all away. Brown says, adversity is rarely a vicious enemy. It is often a valuable ally. It reminds us of the imperishable things that matter most of all, close quote. You see, when these people had the proper perspective, they were like, you know, my possessions are important to me, but if I lose my possessions, I have my faith. If I lose everything in this world, I have an eternal reward. But when we flip those things, we get ourselves in trouble. What we need is endurance. We're gonna learn about endurance in chapter 11 and chapter 12. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Don't lose heart. Keep pressing on. Jesus put it this way. You will be hated on, by all on account of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Luke 21, 17 through 19. And so we endure. For yet in a very little while, 37, he who is coming will come and will not delay. In a very little while, he who is coming will come. Now, this was written in AD 64, and this is why I say that perhaps this is something we have to consider. The writer is referring to the fall of Jerusalem. I believe in the ultimate day of the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But it may well be that the writer saying that day is coming. And Jesus came in judgment on Jerusalem just as he predicted in AD 70. And Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, but it was a judgment of God. Just like God used Babylon to destroy Judah. Just like God used Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom. So it's possible. I'm just putting that out before you. But my righteous one shall live how? By faith. This is what we're going to learn in chapter 11, by faith. That's going to be the repeated phrase over and over again. By faith, by faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, by faith. What we need is faith. Amen? Faith will bring us endurance. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back or draws back, New King James, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is a quote from Habakkuk chapter two. And the Septuagint reads this way, because the vision is yet for an appointed time and it will appear at length and not in vain, if he is late, wait for him 
because he will surely come, he will not delay. If he draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but my righteous one will live by faith. Habakkuk concludes his book by saying these words. It'll be familiar to, I think, many of you. Though the fig tree, Habakkuk 3.17, should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and he makes me walk on my high places. The final verses of Habakkuk. But, says the writer, and I think he's being very pastoral here, and this is what he said in Hebrews chapter six. We're convinced of better things of you. In chapter six, here he says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. When Jesus is preaching in Matthew 16, he said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I was preaching a memorial service some years back and I felt the Lord took me to Matthew 16, 24 through 26 and Jesus was talking about the soul there and he said, you could gain the whole world. He didn't say you could gain an island. You could you know, gain a city block. He said, it wouldn't be worth it if you gained the whole world and forfeited your own soul. And then he said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How much is your soul worth? Uh, Ray Comfort, the great evangelist, will say to people, let me ask you a question. Would you give me, would, would you, uh, give me your eyes for $10 million? If I gave you $10 million right now, would you give me your eyes? Assuming that the person has good eyesight, is not a blind person. And person after person will say, no, I, I won't give you my eyes for, I don't care if you gave me a hundred million or $500 million. My eyes are that through which I see the world. And Ray will often say, yeah, that's right. Your eyes are precious to you, right? And occasionally you'll run into a surfer who's a little bit, you know, sideways and he'll go, yeah, dude, I'll give you, I'll give you my eyes for 10 mil. Yeah. Anyway, that's a different story. And Ray will say, your eyes are, are precious and that's why you wouldn't sell them for anything. And then he says these words. How much is your soul worth? And would you give me your soul for 10 mil? Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've, you've watched some people. Ray will go into the Ten Commandments and he'll start talking about the law of God and judgment. And you'll watch people all of a sudden go from laughing and yucking it up to very serious. And they want to find out how they can be saved. We are those, brethren, who don't shrink back to destruction. We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Your soul has great value. Jesus said, don't fear who can kill him who can kill your body, and after that he has no power. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Hades. Amen. Brethren, I know this world is tough and it's sometimes confusing, but we have brothers and sisters in India right now that are going through it. There's some places in the world where Hebrews chapter 10, 
probably is a little bit more apropos than to us tonight. I know we're, we're worried about our country and where it's headed and what it's gonna mean to be a Christian in the next five, 10, 20 years here. But we are not those who shrink back, amen? So let's stand and let's stand together because we'll be stronger when we stand together. Father, thank you for this word to us tonight. It's not an easy word, but thank you that we had a, a sobering warning and a strong encouragement. And we need both, Lord. There's times when we need to be warned, like a doctor tells us you need a surgery. He makes an incision, maybe it hurts, but it brings healing to our lives. And I think there's probably truth that the the writer of Hebrews is doing that very thing. He is saying hard truth to bring healing, exhortation, and endurance. And tonight, there are some who are listening to my voice that they're hanging on by a thread and they need a word of encouragement, Lord. And I pray that that word would be that you give them endurance in Christ. He endured all the way to the cross. You finished your race, Lord. Help us to finish ours. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Get our eyes off all the distractions, all the weaknesses, all the troubles that we face and refix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Thank you, Lord. I pray that there would be a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit for all believers who are listening to this right now, that the spirit of grace would give grace, grace, and more grace. I pray that waves of grace would come upon your people tonight to endure, to press on, that faith will wake up tomorrow and live one more day by faith. Give the grace that is needed, Lord, tonight. And for those who may not know you tonight, I pray they would call upon the name of the Lord. Because in the Lord, we have salvation. And without the Lord, we have judgment. So I pray anyone who's not sure about their salvation would say something like this, Lord Jesus, save me. Thank you for dying on that cross for the blood of the new covenant, for the resurrection, I repent. And I ask you to save my soul and he will do just that. Thank you, Father. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.